0: Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinergogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and GoGo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R for an hour of science. We're going to fill you up with science between now and twelve o'clock. We've got a couple of amazing guests for the show today, and in the studio
1: with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning, buddy. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm really excited today. It's going to be a whale of a show. Oh, <laughs> someone had to that'll say make it. more sense when we have our first guest. But <laughs> uh, well, that sounds better than saying it's going to be a mega fauna of a show. That doesn't. Mm.
0: How long have yeah. you been working on that one?
1: Most of the morning, actually. <laughs> Dr. Ailey, good morning. Good morning. Admitted, uh, right? That's yeah. just uh, <laughs>
2: intense for a Sunday morning, yeah. I think. Wow. Most,
1: most of the really good ones are around geology and rocks, but yeah. you
0: know, yep. yeah. every now and then it
1: comes up. I've been trying to work one in for baleen, but I just haven't. I, oh. That's the best I did was whale. Oh. Okay.
0: Well, look, uh, we do have the Queen of Wales on the line with us now, <laughs> fortunately, Dr. Vanessa Parada. Who is a wildlife scientist from Macquarie University up there in Sydney? Welcome back, Vanessa. Good to see you.
3: Good to see you too. And on that uh, whale joke was done on porpoise. My <laughs> <tongue>. <laughs> oh, that,
0: that's good. Uh, sorry, folks. <laughs> Not much we can do about this sometimes. Uh, now, Vanessa, we look, last time we chatted, I think you were either just about to go to Antarctica or had just been. I think you were just about to get on the plane, right? And I was very envious. Mm. Is that is that my recalling that correctly?
3: That's right, Antarctica, February this year. I can't wait to get back. So that's right. That was our last discussion. I thought about that as well. And, yeah, it was so cool to see Antarctica from the air. And most importantly, there was a whole plane load of people who were learning about the significance of nature's natural um laboratory that's the way i refer to it as many others do as well it's incredible and that's obviously where the whales are headed right now to antarctica
0: yeah cool stuff now i can imagine if i was on that flight doing the job that you did you know where you're kind of the tour guide i think i would have just gone with look look outside folks it's awesome that's all i'm saying
3: I was, I was representing the um, Antarctic Science Foundation, which do really good work, and I'm yep. still an ambassador for them. And literally, any time you would ch- look out the window, yep, and then you look out the window a moment later, and the scenery had changed. It's so amazing.
0: Mm. And when when you sort of describe that scenery, I know a lot of people have this image of just sort of you know ice as far as the eye can see, but there's a lot more to it than that, isn't there?
3: Oh, absolutely. There's dry areas down in Antarctica, like the dry valleys. It's not all ice. Mm. There's um, Mount Erebus, a volcano down there that was puffing away. It's it's very dynamic. And to see that I was tweeting to some, some of the scientists down there, um, Casey, and I asked if and they said, I saw your plane go over as I was having a cup of tea. And I said, Were the elephant seals there? And they said, yep, all around us. We just couldn't see them from the plane. That's
0: very cool stuff. A a fun fact for those long-term listeners of the show, uh, something for you, Vanessa, but many, many decades ago, and by that I mean two and a half, um, there would be researchers who would take uh, cassette recordings so, for those yes. young folks, that was what we used to record our audio on down to Antarctica, and they would listen to this program about two and a half months after it went to air and then oh. we would get and then we would get comments back you know several months later, saying, "Hey, enjoyed that show in May." Thanks so much. Yeah, so, <laughs> oh, I
3: love it. Well, thankfully, the technology is really cool. We were talking to people on land via the airplane. Like that is crazy.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great stuff. Now you, uh, of course, uh, do a lot of work with whales. One thing I wanted to check up with you before we get into this uh, recent uh, bit of work that you've actually published in the last couple of weeks, is the 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 infamous white whale. Um, mm-hmm. Where are we at at the moment with this uh, amazing creature that we've been tracking for so many years?
3: Well, we're talking about Migaloo, the yeah. white whale. He's a humpback whale confirmed through oh, – he's a male humpback whale confirmed through genetic testing, so that's good. Uh, we haven't seen him for two years now, but the whole world is just – well, I say the whole world, I'm biased. But a lot of people around Australia and, in fact, around the world – Uh, want to know about this one whale he we fortunately i've worked together with scientists and citizen scientists and we've published the first official record sighting record of him over the last 31 years so it shows that there's gaps in sightings he's been seen across the dutch and new zealand you know there's there's a variety of times when we haven't seen him and when we have seen him so people have rushed to say he's dead but Mm. the reality is we just don't know where he is at the moment
0: it's a big ocean right
3: Yeah, that's right. And if anything, he is a flagship animal to say that these animals are migratory giants, they're marine giants, and I'll talk about that very shortly. Mm. And also they're capable of international travel. So our protection for them needs to be widespread and highlights a lot of our impacts in the ocean, unfortunately.
0: Do, Do we know his age and how does that stack up with the sort of longest living humpbacks that we know of?
3: Well, his age at the time when he was first seen, was probably two to five years of age in 1991. So he's in his 30s. Mm. So me and him are hanging out. Not too, not too young. We're in the early 30s, everyone. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, he, he's for a humpback whale. They can live over 50 to 80 years of age. But they're not the longest living whale. The longest living is the bowhead that lives in the Arctic. So the bowhead whale, they can live over 200 years of age.
0: Wow, amazing stuff. Must be that cold water just keeping That's them chill. Right. Yeah. Like
3: the Greenland shark, which can live over 400 years old.
0: Wow. Freaky stuff. You
3: listeners can just go, wow, I've just learned so much.
0: <laughs> now, of course, uh, whales, fish, everything else uh, in the ocean isn't the only thing we are concerned about here because you've been looking at the impact of shipping and shipping lanes uh, over the last few years and, and what that does with regards to some of these marine creatures. So, so tell us about this new paper that you've just published and what that, that sort of indicates.
3: Well, this new paper has two components. So first of all, I'm going to talk about, um, for my PhD research, I define the term with my colleagues, marine giants, which are animals that are large and their biology leads them susceptible to being vulnerable to ship strike. And so that being whale sharks, basking sharks and humpback or whales in general because whales come to the surface to breathe and they're big. Sharks come to the surface at times to bask in the sun or, you know, there's a variety of things, feed. And so that makes them vulnerable. And we looked at roads or marine roads or shipping routes as roads on earth and land rather, and their impacts are similar. So you've got ship strike, road kill, Mm. acoustic pollution and now this paper which has been led by dr vincent Rayol from uni of newcastle who's also affiliated with macquarie university where i'm at he led a study looking at our marine parks marine giants and the impact of shipping in these areas and are we doing a good job of protecting these animals in an area that's meant to be a safe haven
0: Mm. so this is uh, you know this is interesting to me because you would think if we were talking about this on land and we had mm-hmm. a reservation of some type, the idea of you know eighteen wheeler trucks driving through yeah. that reservation would be would be seen as outrageous yeah but but in yeah, right. ocean terms right. it's very different well in
3: ocean terms. It's a lot of out of sight, out of mind, right? Mm. We're not always there. We don't see it. We don't hear ships. I mean, I go to the beach and the first thing I do if I swim in the water is I listen to what I can hear under the sea. Right. Not many people do that yeah, <laughs> yeah. unless you're a an position. And so it can be really noisy. And unfortunately, if there's a lot of noise in the ocean, that can reduce the available space for whales to communicate to each other. So that's a bad thing. And I must point out that the... Production of sound from ships, for example, is an unintentional consequence of the activity. People who drive ships do not want to go, I can't wait to produce this much sound. No, Mm -hmm. they don't. So even the International Maritime Organisation are aware of this kind of activity to try and uh, tell people who are operating ships to minimise their activity in terms of reducing sound and build quieter ships. But us as researchers, we need to take that into account. Okay, we've got an animal that uses sound to communicate to each other over kilometres, why or how can we try and reduce this activity to minimise these impacts? And so that's what this paper is looking at. And unfortunately, in many of our marine parks around Australia, whale sharks and whales, marine giants, are, are susceptible to shipping activity both physically, and so that's ship strike, and also acoustically, which is, you could say, well, you could say it is physical in a way, sound waves, right? Mm. So this is just highlighting the importance for us to look at monitoring and future mitigation of this type of activity in areas which are meant to be safe havens for these animals.
0: Yeah. but so give us an idea of the sort of, I suppose, the, the term I'll use here is level of traffic that we're mm. talking about here. So, you know, if you're in a certain area that is supposed to be a safe haven, I mean, what, what sort of numbers and sizes of ships are we talking about Transitioning those areas.
3: Oh well, ships. So so certain ships, depending on their size, will have a requirement to have AIS or Automatic Identification Systems. So this is basically to go. Okay, you're a really large ship over 100 meters or so. Mm. Um, you need to. We want to work out where you are for safety reasons, but also for movement. So um, that's one thing. So not all. So your little runabout at home on a trailer will not have an AIS system necessarily. Yep. So that's one thing. So this paper was looking at. The data that we have of those vessels, so the, the the vessels that fit into those larger categories, and then overlaid that data with the tagging data of whale sharks, pygmy blue whales, and humpback whales in Australian waters. So there are certain areas, and it goes into a lot of depth, but there are certain areas where these animals go and where they've been tagged, and it can help provide a geographical visual of where these animals go at time, and so. The team has brought together the shipping data and the animal trap uh, tag data together to identify the overlap. And so, shipping data was from 2018 to 2021, and then over around 200 individuals of tagged individuals were assessed for their movements in marine parks from 2003 to 2018. So it's quite it's quite large. And so, the key finding of the paper was over 18% of marine parks had shipping exposure in excess of. 365 vessels per year. Wow. So it's large. yeah. So it's yeah. at least
0: one a day. I mean, you're talking about essentially one a day.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's all. Well, the thing is <laughs> humpback whales aren't present in Australian waters throughout the year, right. so they're here for certain times of the year. So that does need to be taken with a grain of salt or a cup of tea.
0: <laughs> yeah. Although I suppose uh, no matter where they go, well, maybe they, maybe they find locations where these shipping lanes are less um, sort of, you know, prominent and that works better for them.
3: Well, potentially, this is the thing. When I first started my master's research many moons ago, one of the greats, Dr. I should say professor Doug Cato, was he's a great acoustician. And anyone listening, Doug's the best. Um, he essentially was telling me that these animals must just become habituated to white noise. There's so much noise on the east and the west coast, but their biological urge to go north is still there, so they just go with it, right? So to what extent are these sounds just impacting the animals or to what extent do the whales go, yeah, that's just part of the, I'm in Australian waters right now, it's loud here. Mm. But never, never, we, we must make sure that we don't just go, oh, they'll be right, they'll still come back. No, we as humans need to do the right thing. We need to make sure that we learn more about their reactions or at least their behavioural responses to sound and Queensland University have a dedicated team up there doing just that and and how we can try and minimize these impacts.
0: Yeah, interesting. Now, I remember um, a few years back and I could be remembering this wrong, although I don't think so, of seeing a paper that was looking at shipping lanes and lightning strike frequency. <laughs> and they they found in this paper that uh, because of the the petrochemical contaminants that were in these shipping lanes, there were a greater number of lightning strikes in those regions. And you could sort of map, almost map out the wow. shipping lanes of lightning strikes. It, you've talked a fair bit about the sound elements, but are there are issues around, you know, other contaminants and so forth in the waters, and also not just petrochemicals and things of that nature, but also things from other locations that are being dragged in with the ships, whether it's as small yeah. as pennant diatoms or whatever else, but, you know, all sorts of contaminants. What, what's the scenario there?
3: Well, you've really covered it. You're talking about like larger things, smaller things, microscopic levels, obviously the ballast tank removal. So if ships want to get lower or higher, they can suck in juicy water from one part of the world and then come to Australia and let it all out and that can bring with it bad stuff. Um, And, yeah, you've covered a lot. So the physical pollution as well, whether people, they shouldn't be, but just throw things off the back of a ship. I mean, gone are those days... Where I actually when I was in Antarctica, I was working with a scientist who literally uh was where she said to me that when she was working and doing science many moons ago she that's what they just did they didn't burn rubbish, they just would throw it their coke cans they did just go back into the ocean that kind of thing so there's mm. the physical component, but there's probably at some other level um the impact of shipping from yeah you've got metal being in the water, chemicals seeping through. There's probably a number of different things that would require years and years of study to work out the footprint behind the vessel. So there's a number of things that can be going on, and it's good to let the listener know that, yeah, there's ships don't just produce sound, they don't just risk ship strike, but they have a whole host of other things. And also the exhausts which go up into the atmosphere, we need to think greenhouse gases as well
0: yeah now you mentioned that uh, many of these animals do communicate via sound Mm -hmm. do we how much do we know about the range of frequencies over which that occurs and how close is that to the sort of noise pollution frequencies that many of these ships are are putting into the ocean do they overlap or are they far apart like how do they compare
3: oh well that's a really good question and There's a part of that question I I actually don't know. So the output or frequency or sounds of certain vessels, I I couldn't give you a number there. And one of the reasons why is, well, I haven't worked on the output of vessels specifically, but certain vessels would produce different sounds, different levels of sound Mm. based upon the acoustic output of different um, engines, for example. And also the output of sound in certain environments by one engine might differ in another environment because you've got echoing, you've got um, sounds bouncing off different environments, different depths as well. So that's a big question. But what we know with humpback whales and sound production I'm just talking about the humpback whale here we don't actually know to what length or extent that they can hear things we know we can hear their communication so they're talking and their song because we can literally hear it so it overlaps to what we can hear but so the extent or at least the there's probably been done it's just that was well beyond what was needed for the assessment of this paper and also um, for the assessment Mm. of the specificities of how, for example, the International Maritime Organization can try and minimise output versus what whales output as well.
0: Yeah, interesting. Well, Vanessa, I think uh, one of my take-homes for for people from all of this is next time you're down uh, at the beach or wherever you are in the water, pop your head under and have a listen, right, and just see what what everything, you know, what's going on there and what our marine creatures are having to put up with because we're noisy buggers
3: we are and one of the first things i'll hear is that popping sound i don't have anything to make the sound of it but that the crackling that you mm-hmm. can hear that's snapping shrimp so that's oh, the yeah, first thing yeah, yeah. The listeners will go oh yeah i've heard that before yeah, it's snapping shrimp
0: yeah i think dr ray and i here both have had marine aquariums over the years and and oh. when you hear that sound at night you there's a fear oh,
3: God. that comes yeah, through yeah.
0: because they can they can snap right through the glass <laughs>
3: Oh, my gosh, yes. I've heard terrible stories.
0: Yeah, yeah, they're very powerful, but uh, incredible that you you can hear those. Vanessa, uh, thanks so much for chatting to us again. Congrats on the the new paper coming out. I think it's really important that we are aware of just how much the interplay Mm -hmm. exists between our shipping lanes and these environments that we normally talk about as though they're sort of pristine and protected, when in reality, actually, the exposure to these sounds and so forth from shipping is, is quite substantial. So great work there. We hope to talk to you again, uh, probably next year. Now, at some stage.
3: Thank you so much. Have a great day.
0: You too, folks. That's Dr. Vanessa Prother, a wildlife scientist, uh, extraordinary actually, from Macquarie University, and uh, doing some amazing work with whales. You can see her everywhere. She's on always. I see her often on the news and on Twitter and so forth. We're going to take a short break for some music, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about some interesting blood cancer work.
3: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
0: Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and GoGo on Three Triple R. It's me, Dr. Shane. We've got about three shows left for the year. feels like uh, feels like it's been a long year, Doctor A.
1: Well, I think it, it, it's actually been longer than the previous year, because because now we we were able to go outside this year. So. Yeah. <laughs> I think also, like, for some of us, I'm still pretending it's
0: 2019, <laughs> they haven't quite moved on, so the idea of switching the clock across to 2023, nah, not up for it. Uh, tried to get a Christmas tree yesterday, couldn't handle it, left. What can I say? Yeah, I'm weak. Yeah, have <laughs> you ever considered the artificial ones? They're surprisingly oh. lifelike. <laughs> I, I actually could. I went to get the real one yesterday. Too many people thought next week. Classic, you know. Delay. Yeah, but then they'll run out by then, won't oh, they? Shh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! And uh, then I went to a shopping centre very early in the morning to see what they had in the uh, in the plastic variety, and was dreadfully underwhelmed <laughs> and thought, "Oh boy!" So you know, we'll see what happens next week. Yeah, I rely on my local scouts.
2: Yeah. Oh, the scouts are brilliant. The aren't scouts they?
0: are brilliant, and they bring in stuff. Yes. It's filled with all sorts of. Creepy Crawlies, but um, yeah, we usually go by. Anyway, me pets,
4: me pets. You're really
1: selling the holidays. I'm selling it, yeah.
2: Yeah, the smell, nothing
0: beats that smell. It's just great. the smell. Anyway, uh, we should move on. We have in the studio with us Dr. Ashley Ng from uh, Wehi and the Royal Melbourne Hospital and the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. Ashley, welcome back after a decade to the Einstein
4: the Go-Go studio. Thank you very much for having me back. And uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here today.
0: It's great to have you in. I, I, I love uh, whenever I get a guest back after a long time, the, peeking behind the curtain here for our listeners, I usually ask if they've been on the show before because my memory's so bad. <laughs> if it's greater than one week since you've been on, I usually don't remember, which is terrible. But anyway, uh, but I do remember the topics. And that's one of the things that's interesting to me. But I, I got some information sent to me last week that you were doing some amazing stuff now you're a clinical haematologist let's unpack that a bit first
4: haematology is study of blood right it is the study of blood and in clinical haematology what the doctors do is to understand uh, blood diseases and how to treat them both blood diseases are cancerous and blood diseases are not cancerous Mm.
0: in terms of Organs, I can understand really easily, you know, what disease looks
4: like. You know, mm. it
0: starts to, the organ starts to decay or its function is not there. What, what happens in a
4: blood disease, though? So blood's actually quite important, uh, in, obviously, in your body mm. because it has a number of functions. Uh, so if we took a drop of blood, for example, if you pricked your finger and you see the, the red cells there, the red colour there, there's actually a lot of cell types in there. Right. So there's red cells, which carry oxygen to make your body function and deliver to the cells so they can work. There are white cells, which are there to fight infection. And there are these cellular fragments called platelets, which stop you bleeding. Right. Um, and in that milieu in which they exist, in the fluid, there are also proteins, which are important to stop um, co- uh, to stop you bleeding as well um, and also have a lot of other functions. So diseases of blood can manifest in a number of ways. Um, for example, if people with anemia for example mm. as a common feature of blood diseases iron deficiency anemia they can start to feel tired yep. for example or if you've got the problems with their infection fighting cells the white cells they can be prone to infection and if they've got problems with low platelets they can be prone to bleeding
0: mm. interesting now our our blood cells are produced now i'm going to get this wrong in the spleen is uh, it partly no bone marrow bone marrow oh, so you get there physics guy I know you're doing very well. Yeah. So in
4: the bone marrow and... How many blood cells are we producing, like, daily or monthly? So we actually need to replace a lot of our blood cells each day. The white cells don't last for very long, what we call the neutrophils. They've got a fairly short um, time in the blood, and they go into the tissue. But we also need to produce platelets every day. And we know this because if we give certain types of therapy, um, for example, chemotherapy or even high-dose radiotherapy, that we can actually watch a patient's blood counts fall over a period of weeks. Um, And so we know that there's an ongoing need to replace those blood cells in our system.
0: Yeah, interesting. I'm a little embarrassed I said spleen there briefly, but oh, no, I, I, I saved spleen, myself
4: The spleen is absolutely a source of blood cell production. Oh, it is? Oh, I'm off the hook. It's not the main source of production, <laughs> oh, so you, you can yeah, that's your escape no, mechanism. No, okay, I'm safe
0: Now, in terms of being a clinical hematologist, because this is uh, you know one of the reasons I was happy to have you in again today is that there's this intersection between the clinical space and mm. the research space, and you, you've got a foot firmly planted in both camps. I mean talk us through what that's like, because there is a big distinction when you're active researcher and a clinician at the same time yeah
4: yeah absolutely and one of the things that i do note is that when i've doing hematology when i was growing up as a as a trainee and throughout uh to where i am now there's a lot of innovations which have occurred and that's mm. occurred through science Yep. and so what we are understanding a lot now about different blood conditions is that there's an underlying molecular mechanism that means genes may be abnormal or we actually start to understand the processes by which the disease arises and what i've seen in just my fairly short career um, is that there are certain new treatments which have arrived and become the standard of care because we've understood the molecular mechanisms. And one of the things as a clinician is that that gives you some insight into what the importance of science, mm. the of research, importance of research, and also from the other end, we get to ask the question, what are the important problems or important um, diseases that we need to address and how can we best address it from the science point of view? So in some ways, it gives you a perspective from both sides. And at the end of the day, what we're actually trying to do is improve patient outcomes and patient care. And so it does give you a target, I guess, in terms of what you like to research and what we want to focus on. Yeah.
0: I mean, one of the things I find interesting, and we we don't talk about this a lot, but it's it's quite hard to get – you know, uh, trials and and patient Mm. research done at the GP level because they see so many different types of things in a given week. There's no sort of concentration of diseases. But in your space where, you know, you're seeing blood cancers all the time. Mm. That that must give you incredible access to you know, patient samples, patients and so forth to do specific work.
4: Yeah, absolutely right. So one of the advantages and one of the requirements I think nowadays to do this type of clinical research or translational research is to have expertise in treating the conditions that you're researching. And you're right about the Uh, about the patient samples and the patient cohorts Mm. because we actually need numbers of patients who are um, willing and able to participate in such trials. And to actually understand the effect of a treatment targeted towards a specific disease, you need a certain number of um, uh, uh, patients who are enrolled in a trial to see the outcomes, whether it be uh, positive or even negative. Mm. So the actual process of clinical trials is actually quite, uh, shall we say... It requires a lot of administrative as well as coordinated work from a number of um, uh, people who are experts in their field and this is one of the difficulties in having disseminated treatments for example from a gp level they don't have that support yeah yeah
0: now in terms of you mentioned clinical trials a few times i think one of the the numbers and i don't i'm sure you probably got this in your head and i've forgotten it but What amazed me was when I first learned how many people coming through the cancer centre in Melbourne were actually on clinical trials. And it's not like 5%, it's like, you know, more than half, I think, isn't it?
4: We actually aim, depending on what trials are open at a specific centre, and that's what we're actually aiming to try and increase that number. Mm. Because one of the ways to advance treatments and to advance patients... Uh, outcomes in terms of the quality of life and survival is to actually try and push the edge of where we are and as a clinician we actually do know uh, what the outcomes are to standard of care therapy and we do know that needs to be work done to actually improve those in a number of diseases yeah
0: now in the blood cancer space i i heard uh, a couple of years ago from um you know i think we we hire sort of news megaphone, um, you know, they do some amazing work. But the drug venetoclax um, came out. I mean, that must have been transformational in terms of hematology and the way in which certain blood cancers were dealt with. Yeah,
4: absolutely. And this was well, is one of the things that you note about the importance of discovery based research. So that venetoclax is your listeners may not know is a specific molecule. Uh, which acts to tro- uh, stimulate cell death, and especially cancer cell death. But the actual biology, to understand that, uh, happened way back, like a few decades ago. Mm, right. um, so that, that process by which it was understood how... These particular molecules and cells kept cells alive, and then the development of these small molecules to kill to attack those proteins to cause a cell death, then led to venetoclax being developed on the back of previous iterations yeah. of, of the drug. Yeah. So it's actually been quite incredible to see an understanding of how the disease, how the, uh, the biology. Uh, translate to clinical trials. And what we're seeing now is the expansion of the use of venetoclax from the original diseases it was designed to treat. Right. So initially it was designed to treat a, a disease called chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Uh, which had been known to have a high level of what's called BCL2, an anti-cell death molecule in, in it. And by treating it with a target therapy uh, to attack that BCL2 and cause its destruction is to, to cause the cell cell death. Now the range of venetoclax indications has increased to acute myeloid leukemia, for instance, and a number of clinical trials, both conducted here as well as overseas, has shown that's sort of benefit to patients.
0: Mm. It's, it's incredible stuff. I mean, um, you know, I think m- many of our listeners we'll have a, a family member at some stage who'd been hit by a blood cancer, leukaemia. I mean, one of my grandparents, you know, died of exactly that. And, you know, like at a time when they really, you know, there was some radiation therapies, but there really wasn't much around. And the idea that, you know, this is so effective. I, I mean, I have some vague recollection. This could be something I dreamt that it was so effective that you had to lower the dose originally from what they were, they were, they were looking at because it cleared so much out of the system so fast. It was... Yeah. That, yeah which...
4: So it's absolutely and with any type of new drug and one of the things about trials is that we actually need to understand the safety and how to use the drug properly and what we do do is actually increase the dose of vinoclaxis slowly because of something called tumour lysis syndrome and that means that when you actually give a drug which is effective it can actually cause tumour cells to die which is what you want mm. but that causes sec- secondary side effects releasing toxins into the blood, causing kidney problems, causing rhythm problems in the heart if the salts in the blood go um, high, for example. So we actually need to manage all those complications of drug treatment alongside the treatment. Mm. But even with venetoclax as it is now, we actually still need to improve on things because if we ask the question, does venetoclax cure a disease by itself, it actually doesn't. So we actually, now the combination therapies are coming into, into play. But one of the nice things about venetoclax and these newer types of targeted therapies is that we're moving away from treating patients needing to be in hospital paradigm to being able to treat patients out of hospital. Yeah, you want that. That's the nice part. Correct. Yeah. Now,
0: Ashley, I have to play a couple of very important station announcements. You stick around for a bit? Absolutely. Sounds great, folks. A uh, couple of things from R, and we'll be back uh, to talk more about Ashley and the award that he's just won. Independent Melbourne Radio Three Triple R. And welcome back, folks. We are in the studio with Dr. Ashley Ng, who is from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, Royal Melbourne Hospital, and the Peter MacCallum Cancer Centre. Ashley, this. Last, I think it's last week, uh, or in the last couple of weeks, you have been awarded Australia's Metcalf Prize for uh, your work. Tell us a bit about the prize first of all. What does that mean?
4: Yeah, so it's a great honour to receive the Metcalf Prize. I was one of the co-awardees, um, and it was really in recognition of the work in terms of stem cell research that I've done over the last decade or so in terms of providing uh, information, insights into how stem cells function and work.
0: Mm. Is it is it a medal briefcase of cash? Car.
4: It was the prestige. Prestige, and uh, it's which it is more than anything. Else. And also, there was a certificate to it. Oh, well, hey, that's which a, is great. That, that's great. And there was there was uh, also funding support for research in terms of my stem cell research as well. Yeah, well,
0: that's good. We never say no to that. Absolutely. Um, I, although I do think you know, with all these prizes, you know, researchers should get a, you know, I don't know, a, uh, what a uh, electric vehicle. I was going to say new car. Or something yeah. Like yeah. That? No, not old. No, no. You know, you no, want no, something no, like no. a you know Tesla EV, or something. Yeah. Some, yeah, 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 yeah EV. For, yeah. yeah.
4: I, I wouldn't be against that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You'll be disturbed if someone hears this conversation that happens next
4: year and you're the last one not to get the card. That's right. Uh, anyway, now, stem
0: cells. How do stem cells um, play a role in, in blood cancers?
4: Yeah, so stem cells is, are very important in terms of all um, humans especially. So as I mentioned before, uh, when we have to make red cells white cells and platelets, to to replenish them all the time. The basis of it is a stem cell. So the stem cells have very important features. One, they uh, can self-renew. That means they can produce another stem cell. They can also have the ability to form different types of blood cells. Uh, and they are actually important in terms of normal, healthy function. And because we know about stem cells uh, from our treatments, because if we didn't have stem cells, we wouldn't be able to regenerate our red cells, white cells and platelets after chemotherapy or after radiotherapy but we also know that stem cells have because of these properties also can uh, if they have abnormalities in them such as within certain types of leukemia that they can carry on that mutation or that abnormality for the other cells that they produce right and certain types of blood cancers especially leukemias have that ability of the stem cells to propagate and self-renew and uh, also have resistance for example to certain types of treatment so when a stem cell doesn't behave or when a occurs in a stem cell to cause it to misbehave it doesn't form the red cells white cells and platelets but just forms other cells which carry the mutation and replace the normal blood cells and that causes problems with for example acute leukemia yeah
0: interesting now one of the things i've always been fascinated about with regards to cancers is you know you have this scenario where you and i know we still probably use this term but you put a person into remission after Mm. a series of it can be a combination of chemotherapy could be surgery could be you know um, radiation therapy or or usually all of the above and then you you have a scenario where you know there's those sort of five-year checks Mm. and sometimes the the cancer will, will come back do we do we know what's occurring there is that a stem cell based problem that's causing things to come back
4: it's certainly a cancer based problem and one of the analogies we draw is that cancer cells have some of the features of a stem cell, mm-hmm. but the actual by the time you become a cancer or leukemia you 're actually very far away from the cell of origin or a normal cell of origin for most types right. of leukemia but you 're right in terms that there's some properties of the ca- uh, cancer cells which are like stem cells in that they can resist t- certain types of therapy like chemotherapy or radiotherapy, and you actually don 't need that many cells uh, potentially to actually generate. what we call relapse, that means those cells can grow up again, even though you can't really detect them very well, or you may not be able to detect them very at all with our current technology, but we know that they're there because the disease has returned. Yeah,
3: interesting. So
2: so is there a way to manipulate those stem cells, or are they kind of, you know, that's what they are, you have to just get rid of them, the ones that mutate? How does that...?
4: Yeah, so manipulating the actual cells themselves, that's, if we talk about... About genetic manipulation, I think you know we don't want to do that because they have the mutations with them and they'll carry them with them. But because of the, we're actually entering a new era, really, of molecular-based therapy. That means if we understand the mutation in a cell, we can now start to think about the molecular mechanisms how that mutation makes the cancer, but also develop therapies against it. And what we're seeing now, for example, with the example with venetoclax or other types of small molecule inhibitors, what we are identifying is that certain mutations can be targeted uh, with molecular therapies. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing now that there's a new uh, uh, ability for us to approach treatment just without just chemotherapy, but these molecular targeted agents and therapy. So we are, in a way, uh, manipulating those cancer cells, but manipulating it in the way that we're using therapy to target their abnormalities Hmm.
0: now i have like a 1980s uh understanding of chemotherapy but it it essentially works because the correct me if i'm wrong here because the cancer cells are the most rapidly growing cells in the body and so when you poison parts of the body they die first
4: yeah is that true yeah in general that's probably a reasonable um, understanding and explanation for it the cancer cells do divide And because of that, they're dependent on certain cell processes Mm. to to be able to form another functioning cancer cell. And when you give chemotherapy, you're actually causing a lot of damage to the cell mechanisms, and you're trying to stimulate the cell to die using mechanisms such as what we call apoptosis, uh, which is programmed cell death. And by damaging DNA in a cancer cell, it can stimulate, even though the cancer cell is abnormal... Some of these mechanisms still exist to stimulate cell death. Mm. So, a lot of the chemotherapies which were in the past have disrupted cell function to stimulate cell death.
0: Yeah, Interesting. Now, actually, just um, clarify something for me here. Mm. One of the big pathways that I know a lot of cancer therapies have gone down and are going down is that of immunotherapies. So essentially, you know, teaching our immune systems to do the job that they kind of stop doing at some point, you know, like, like we get we get cancer all the time, right? I mean, our immune system cleans it up in our body, we get all sorts of abnormal cells and stuff going on. But normally, that's fine. And then we get to a point where Whatever happens, we don't keep up or our immune system fails or, you know, we start getting something abnormal. But what you're talking about with the stem cell therapies is is a different pathway, yeah?
4: Yeah. So if you talk about immune therapies, we're using ways of manipulating our own cells, for example, Mm. with CAR T therapy, to make those T cells recognize the cancer cells more efficiently. Yep. And so by manipulating it to recognise, for example, a certain protein on a cancer cell, it just acts them like a, a target, homes them into the cancer cell to attack them and kill them. So that's with immunotherapy from cell therapies. But we're also using other types of immunotherapy, for example, antibody therapies, where we have like two hooks, one hook for a protein on the cancer cell and another hook to bring in the T cell to try and recognise right. that cancer together. So that's immunotherapy. But from stem cell therapies, we're thinking about different, uh, different ways of using the stem cell and hopefully normal stem cell characteristics. So we actually don't need to manipulate any stem cells for giving chemotherapy for the red cells and white cells and platelets to recover. That's an inherent property of what we have in our bone marrow Mm. But we're talking about stem cell therapies for treatment of disease. There are certainly now ways of trying to manipulate an abnormal stem cell, uh, which is producing cells which have an abnormality. Uh, For example, for red cell abnormalities like sickle cell anemia um, or thalassemia, where we're trying to alter the genetics of that abnormal cell to either correct it or to express other types of proteins to mitigate the abnormal function of that protein. Gee, wild stuff, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Now in terms of, um, before we let you go, just a couple more things. Sure. First up is the access to large data sets and mm. having good electronic health records which we are starting to get in Melbourne you know, I mean they're not yeah. all there and in fact you know, various hospitals have different you know, some have Epic, some have Cerner, different they're like, like Microsoft and Apple people if you're not, you know, across that but you know different systems which don't talk to each other as much as we would like. Um, but we do have some of these capabilities that we see in
4: other, in other countries. How are we going with that and how important is that to the work you're doing? I think this is very important so having cutting edge therapies is one thing having brilliant research is another but doing the good things well just to support our patients through our treatments and understanding the outcomes in the real world does require us to measure things. And to have these electronic medical records coming online now does really improve our ability to measure things, mm. uh, treatment response, time patient waiting in the waiting rooms, right. that type of thing. and. We are starting to realise the potential of that Um, and this is just fairly nascent in Australia compared to, for example, US and um, other countries in Asia or UK which have had these systems for a while. But once we have the ability to understand what we call health services um, uh, research, for example, to understand the processes by which we treat our patients, uh, we can actually work on improving their outcomes through these types of uh, uh, initiatives. Yeah.
0: Now... You're a hematologist, Ashley. You know everything there is to know about blood. Are you secretly storing your young man blood somewhere in the freezer to be re-injected into your body when you're 70?
4: Unfortunately not. (laughs) So young man blood, is the best way to do that is through my umbilical cord. Oh, yeah. And when my young man umbilical cord was actually unfortunately thrown out Uh, after birth. But there is the ability to store your cord blood, for example, in terms of these cord blood banks. And... It does cost to, mm. to do it. Mm. Um, and the question is, what is your feeling? Why would you want to do it? Yeah, Some of it's from trying to keep it to... Just in case. Just in case. But I think, you know, for, for most pay- people, that just-in-case situation probably won't arise. Yeah. But also for benevolence. So, um, for example, if you want to donate or put into a cord blood such that we can use those cord bloods down the track, for example, in a, in a stem cell transplant for someone else. So we haven't talked much about transplant therapies and how we use that in terms of uh, those stem cells, in terms of uh, helping to cure uh, cancer conditions. Right. Uh, but we do have, do store stem cells away either uh, from patients uh, or from donors uh, to actually use in what we call uh, allogeneic stem cell transplant treatments but maybe come back to that another day
0: yeah definitely i remember uh, when one of my children were born i was speaking to one of these cord bank uh sales reps I'm going to say that. And there was a line that he used which sort of uh, summed it up for me at the time, which was, you know, coincidentally and of great benefit to (laughs) you is the fact that the cost of storage is the same as the baby bonus. And I was thinking (laughs) – Well, that is a coincidence, isn't it? (laughs) Now, can you give me the fear sort of chat again (laughs) as to why And I thought, whoa, hang on a minute. This sounds uh, a little bit uh, like something I wouldn't want to do. And so investigated the possibility of of donation. Mm. Um, And that, of course, depends on where you are. Yes. So, you know, in certain hospitals, they don't do it. So I think they're, they're too busy worrying about getting the kid out.
4: Um, yeah, <laughs> which is fair enough. I mean- and certainly, I guess with um, stem cell therapies that we use for allogeneic transplant, uh, we don't. Having cord blood is one type of stem cell source we use, but um, thankfully, we actually have other. Uh, uh, a system where we can actually get donor stem cells from other people. We don't need, ha- need to have them stored, uh, either donors or family, uh, other unrelated donors or voluntary volunteers, or actually family members if there is a match. So we only put that type of therapy up for certain types of diseases and for certain types of patients who would tolerate it. Uh, but it's certainly something that we do do in our regular work, uh, which is important use of stem cells in, in treating human disease.
0: Yeah, Ashley, great having you in the studio again. Good luck with the ongoing work, and congratulations on getting the Metcalf Prize. That is quite an achievement, and I'm I'm glad you got the certificate and the kudos. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Folks, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to do some news for the week, uh, left to the end of the show, after all the guests.
3: Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app.
1: Uh, You are listening to Triple R, folks. It's been a huge week in science, Dr. Ray. What have you got? It has, Dr. Shane. You know, I saw something and went, oh, that's actually... You look at chemical engineering discoveries or discoveries in science, and you go, well, is this a cool idea, or is it going to change anything? Is it, is it just a, a great step in science, or does it have the potential to change? And I saw a discovery in what are called electrolyzers this week and went, actually, that actually has potential to change things. Um, for those of you that don't know, an electrolyzer is how we one of the ways we can generate hydrogen gas from water. Cool. And, and so what we mm-hmm. do is and, – and you – you may have done this in a science class before is you take two wires, one from a positive part of a battery and one from a negative. You put it in water. The water might have a little bit of a particular salt. And at those two at what's called the cathode and the anode, they actually will split water molecules into hydrogen gas and oxygen gas. And, and why that's cool is if one only generates at one, one electrode. So you can separate the two gases, but it's also a way to generate hydrogen from water. Mm. Now, that sounds awesome. Why aren't we using that? Because then if we had the hydrogen, we could use it in hydrogen fuel cells to generate electricity. And this sounds awesome. Wait, I could get hydrogen gas from water. And you can. The only catch is you need electricity to do it. So electrolyzers have to be efficient. And no matter how much electricity you put in, you're not going to get the equal amount of energy in hydrogen or oxygen out. So how do you make an electrolyzer useful? Because people are talking about this is going to be the green economy. Green hydrogen, where's it going to come from? Well, if you can get your electricity from solar or windmill or turbines, then then your electricity cost doesn't generate fossil fuel. Then you've got hydrogen, and then you can generate electricity in a fuel cell from that. And So that's kind of how Mm. electrolyzers, which is the electrolysis of water and a, a little process unit, are supposed to help us with hydrogen. Well, electrolyzers have two challenges with them. One, they make all different types, and they're trying to get them more and more efficient. And there's really interesting technology there, which is great. They're working on it. They're doing better. But the problem with electrolyzers is you're splitting up water into hydrogen and oxygen. And the water you need needs to be really clean, like really high-end drinking water. No matter how efficient (laughs) it is, it's got to be really clean water. And the thing is, when we make water that clean, we tend to want to drink it. And we need a lot more of it. So. Water's kind of scarce in a lot of areas. And and if you have water that's dirty, let's say you had seawater. Oh, you could do it from seawater, like we desalinate. Well, actually, you'd have to desalinate the water first because all of the other ions and things that come along in seawater will cause extra reactions. They'll corrode the electrolyzer. They'll make it a crusty, rusty mess, and, and then it's not working. So one of the biggest challenges why electrolyzers haven't become mainstream is... They need really fancy water, hmm. so a set of researchers from Sichuan, Nanjing, and Curtin University have come up with a way to, assault, to solve this problem, which I thought was rather elegant: to create an electrolyzer that doesn't that can work with seawater. And all they did was they took the cathode, the anode, mostly of all, all the little pieces of, that they need that you would normally stick in water, and they sandwiched it around two membranes, and the membranes were basically Gore-Tex. So this is the same breathable fabric when you have a rain shell that keeps the water out, but lets the water vapor go through. And it's also very common in your running shoes. And they basically encapsulated their electrolyzer in these membranes that let the water vapor through, but don't let the water liquid through. Hmm. So you can put it in seawater. It pulls out the water vapor. Then it uses the water vapor to then actually create the hydrogen and oxygen. Um, and they've been doing, they showed they could scale this up. And so it lets you work with seawater and wastewater, and you don't need nearly as clean water to do an electrolyzer. And so while it might not sound that exciting, this might actually be a leap forward that changes how electrolyzers work. And it's maybe one step that moves something like a green hydrogen economy more to a reality. So I thought that was pretty cool. Sounds damn good if it works. Sounds damn good. Because uh, I want to be producing the hydrogen off solar panels. That
2: would be excellent.
1: That would be excellent. Well, there's things about storage and you know. Yeah, there worry about that. Yeah, anyway, yeah, Yeah, I've got some space in the garage. Oh dear, (laughs) (laughs) Doug Daly, where do you go for us?
2: Well. We finally have a summer day today. <laughs> oh, my hey, gosh. It's, yeah, I know. But, you know, at least it's getting warm. And I don't know about you guys, but summer for me, summer storms, I'm a big fan. Oh, they're great. They're awesome. Yeah. Although know?
0: we've had some good ones over the winter period.
2: Well, we have actually. Yeah. Not quite yeah. the summer intensity, you know, but still good. stupid cold days that kept coming at Go away, La Nina. Honestly, really,
0: it's <laughs> much. I love La Nina. Oh, really? Except I don't. I don't it. love the flooding. No, but I do love the rainy, the the beautiful. Fourteen you know,
2: degrees two weeks ago. I gold? Don't think man. so? Nah. No. Gold? No, it's yeah. not. Not doing it for me. Anyway, gotta love a summer storm. But um, interestingly, you know those light shows that you get at night. Mm. Fantastic. Lightning is pretty specko. That's what. You know, and you know chances of being hit by it pretty low. Just stay inside. You're all good. Did you know that there are around eight. 7.6 million lightning strikes a day.
1: Is that all? Around I actually thought Earth. it was 7.9. But... <laughs> yeah.
3: On average.
2: That
1: that's not me Melbourne, away. that's around the world. No, that's
2: around the world. It's yeah. not in Melbourne. Yeah. I, that, would, that would be intense. <laughs> yeah, That'd be fun. <laughs> that'd <would> be very <laughs> intense. But up until now, we've never actually known why lightning um hits the ground the way it does. Really? Basically, I know it sounds crazy. You would think, oh yeah, we know how we know how lightning works, right? You yeah. have a big thunderstorm, you've got lots of hail in the thunderstorm, crashing together, it kind of builds up br- a charge, builds up a charge, and it's then got to
0: dissipate. Got- yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. So boom, there it goes, right? Yeah. And these these. Yeah. Lightning bolts within clouds can go oh, yeah. very, yeah, yeah. very long way, yeah. um, but we've never actually known, you know, when lightning comes to the ground. I don't know if you've had a had a good look at lightning yeah. when it hits the ground before. Yeah. Well,
0: there's that lead up that happens, yeah. isn't it? That comes from the ground up. Yep, first. so you have the
2: leaders exactly yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, which is cool. Yeah, absolutely, but it's not in a straight line, right? No, it's zigzags. Hmm. And actually, if you look at it in really high speed photography, not only does it zigzag, it actually steps. So the whole thing doesn't go flash at once. Right. If we look in the order of kind of millionths of a second, <laughs> you yep. know. It takes its time. So it takes its time. And it actually steps down. They've yep. known this for quite a while. It's so It's path of
0: least resistance. Yeah, effectively,
2: yeah. right. But what yeah. they've never known is, well, why does it step? What's going on? There's been a problem in atmospheric physics for about 50 years. Anyway, they've solved it. Oh, nice. So that's pretty cool. So a um, couple of researchers from the University of South Australia were having a look at this. And what they discovered was that basically as lightning starts to form, um, it reacts with the oxygen molecules in the air and forms what's called a singlet delta oxygen molecule. Of course. Right, you know, as you do, Um, which basically plays around. Look, long story short, it it plays around with the electrons and, and, you know, knocks some electrons off, brings some electrons in, does all sorts of fancy stuff, but what it does is that when you have air that has about one percent or more of the oxygen molecules as these singlet delta molecules, all of a sudden it becomes a great conductor. Oh, nice. Yeah. So what happens is you start getting this this you know the the thunderstorm reacts and it does this thing and makes these molecules, and you get a little bit of lightning starting as one step it goes about fifty meters, right? Then at the end of that charge, it kind of has this uh, you know, cascading effect where it all of a sudden changes the end the of bit. that, the next yeah. bit, and it goes down and down and down and yeah. down and down. So, yeah, this has been a problem for 50 years. Nobody solved all it. Solved. Now I it's
0: done. It. I love the way you describe it. Yeah, there's a couple of couple yeah, people over there just, in Adelaide. They're sitting yeah, around and yeah, thinking thought, about this and uh, solved not?
2: it for the world. Yeah, it's great.
0: Well, I'm Adelaide. I take back everything I said about you. <laughs> It was good. Excellent, excellent, excellent. <laughs> Wine. Excellent. Uh, folks, uh, we're at the end of the show. Thank you, Dr. Ailey. Thank you, Dr. Ray. Uh, we're going to hand over in a moment to the team from Eat It. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we have a couple of shows left, which will be very exciting in the coming weeks. Until then, have a great Sunday, and we'll chat to you in seven days. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of R's Einstein A Go Go. A weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.